Our next speaker is Tamara Marshall. She is currently the director of live feeds at Dallas World Aquarium. She has over 16 years of experience in live feeds production. Uh, she's successfully cultured several species of marine ornamental fishes as well as marine ornamental invertebrates. Uh, and today, she's gonna be talking to you uh, about scientific sessions for the home breeder and uh, she's gonna share her insights in live feeds production with all of you. Great. Give a round of applause, it's Mary Marshall. Everybody hear me okay? Microphone's good? All right. Well, hi everyone. My name is Tamara Marshall. I'm with the Dallas World Aquarium. My lecture today is going to be a scientific session for the home breeder. So welcome. Um, I want to say thank you so much for coming. This is amazing. What do we have? Four or five thousand people in the room? It's exciting. Shh. They're filming it. They don't know. All right. A little bit about myself. Um, I mostly learned how to breed by learning how not to breed. So it was a lot of trial and error, a lot of mistakes made, and a lot of lessons learned. Um, the reason that I, I started this lecture idea is when I joined the scientific realm, I learned a lot of techniques and tricks that I wish I would have always known. It would have made me a lot more successful, a lot faster, and so that's kind of what we're gonna cover today, okay? What I love about aquaculture is the fact that you can be in your garage, you can be in your living room, in your basement, and you can be the first person to breed something. To me, that's amazing. You can literally join the scientific discussion from your garage. You can learn something that nobody else knows and you can share it with the world. To me, that is absolutely fantastic. However, your work has to count. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today. And what I mean by that, my best example, is when somebody breeds a brand new species, I am so excited to meet them. I am fangirl, oh my God, how'd you do it? And most of the time they look at me like, I don't really know. What? How do you not know how you did it? And they go, oh, well, I've, I kind of did the same thing I've always done, but this time I got lucky. This time I bred five fish. Well, that's great, but that's not really helpful. What did you learn? How did you breed that five fish? Because if what you're telling me is your recipe for success is luck, that's not repeatable. You can't repeat luck. If at the end of the day you've bred five fish and you don't know how to do it, congratulations. I will congratulate you on breeding five fish. But if you can't do it again, you haven't brought the conversation forward. You haven't added to the knowledge of how to breed that species. The next person who breeds that species has to do 100% of the work because you haven't brought anything to the table. That's what we're gonna talk about today. We want to talk about how to make you more successful in a shorter amount of time. Who's excited? Yeah, there we go. Knew we'd get some excitement. All right, I want to say a really big thank you before I get started to Avier Montavo. He's one of the few scientists that when you talk to him and you say, how did you do it? He can actually say, okay, on day one I did this. On day two, on day three. So not only does he know how to do it, but he's willing to share the information. So he's been kind of my mentor for the last two years, teaching me a lot of the techniques that I'm gonna share with you today. 
So for those of you who do not know Avier, he's in the back. Hi, Avier. I have found over the years the best way to thank somebody is to publicly embarrass them. So here's a couple of pictures of uh, Avier. You're welcome. The more you embarrass them, the more you're thanking them, right? I'm pretty sure that's what I've heard. All right. <laughs> All right, we're going to get started. I want to tell you an example of how I always used to breed. Now, again, I am a self-taught breeder. So I'm going to kind of walk you through exactly what I would do, and you tell me if it's something that you would do. We're going to start with our fictitious fish, the Fraggle Rock fish. Okay? Now, this fish has never been bred before. The only thing we know about it is it's a pelagic spawner. The very first day I get eggs, step one, you dance for about five minutes, right? But we got eggs. That's always step one. Don't lie. That's step one. Step two is you're going to collect the eggs out of the tank. Step three, you're going to put them in another tank. Maybe at some point we take microscope photos. We kind of look at them. We assess them. What? Brand new species. Um, we're going to wait till they hatch. Exciting. Maybe take some more pictures. Oh my God, they're so adorable. Right. Over time, we're going to wait maybe 48, 72 hours. We're going to start feeding the tank. We're going to be throwing in how much food? Everything you got. How is that always the answer? How much did you feed? Everything I had. That's always the answer. So you're going to put in everything you have. And over a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks, the numbers dwindle to where you don't have any. And that's perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with failure. I have failed more times in my life than I care to admit. There's nothing wrong with that. But you have to ask yourself the question, what did I learn? It's fine to fail if you learn something. So at the end of every single trial, I always ask myself two things. The first thing is, what did I learn? So we're going to go through that example, and we're going to talk about what we didn't learn. I did not learn the number of eggs I started with. I just put them in the tank. I did not learn my viability. How many of those were actually fertilized and had a, a chance of survival? How many of those actually hatched out? Water quality issues? I don't know. Food density. How much did I feed? Everything I had. Not useful. Quality of live feeds. How were my live feeds? Were they healthy? Were they good? Were they contaminated? Did they have good nutrition? I don't know. And most importantly, I don't know why they died. This is what we're going to talk about today. This is what we're going to learn. Because if you can answer those questions, you're going to become a lot more successful in a much shorter time frame. Okay? The second question I always ask myself, first, what did I learn? Number two, what would I do different? If you don't know what you did here, you don't know what to change here. The goal is if you breed five fish the first time and you know how you did it, you can breed 50 fish the next time. And you can make changes and then breed 500 fish. But you have to know what you did each step of the way. Goal is always to reduce luck. There is luck in breeding. I'm not going to act like there isn't. There is absolutely as much luck as science as there is art. This is our goal is to make that the smallest percentage. We want a lot of science that we're going to talk about, a little bit of finesse, a little bit of luck. Okay? So what we're going to learn today is between steps two and three. Step one, what was step one? 
Yep, dance. Step two, collect eggs. Step three, put them in the tank. There's a whole world of science that we just missed. And that's what I never knew. I've read a lot of books, a lot of papers, and they don't talk what's between steps two and three. That's what we're gonna talk about. I understand time is always an issue with a home breeder, always. You have to get up early before work. You have to stay up late after work. It cuts into your time with your friends, your family, binge watching Stranger Things. I get it. It cuts into that time. So we want to make your time as valuable as possible. We don't want to waste your time. We want to make sure by the time you start your first larval run, you have everything you need to be successful. Everything in line to have your highest chance of success. Let's talk about counting eggs. The first thing we're gonna do is step two, we've collected our eggs. Ideally, you would count every single egg, right? I understand you're not gonna do that. I'm not gonna pretend like you are. So we're gonna start with a specific volume of water and we're gonna, well, a well-mixed volume of water and we're gonna take subsamples. We're not gonna count every egg. We don't have that kind of time. I get it. But we are gonna start counting the eggs. Make sure you practice. When I first started counting eggs, it took me over 45 minutes, and I'm not kidding on that number. I'm very slow, it's very precise, and I wanna make sure I've counted every single egg. It took me 45 minutes, I have it down to about 13 minutes. Can you fit 13 minutes in before work? That's the question, can you? Yes, okay, can you fit 45 minutes in? Maybe not, so on your weekends, when you are not gonna be rushing off somewhere, take your time, practice counting your eggs to where you can count them very, very quickly. I use a egg well plate, also known as a tissue culture plate. So it's just a little acrylic or plastic or whatever little container you can put your eggs into each one and they're much easier to count that way. Um, or some people use a depression slide. I use this as a zooplankton counting disc. You, you can count this for eggs. I like using this for rotifers and copepods. So I just wanted to throw this on this slide. To me, it makes it a lot easier to count your live feeds that way. So a little bit of math. We do need a little bit of math. At the end of the slide, if you want to take a picture of it so you'll have the formulas, that'll make it easier. We're going to make it easy. So let's start with an example. We have a 1,000 milliliter container with our eggs in it. We're going to count that 15 milliliters three times. Now, I don't want to teach you complicated math. So at the end of counting that 15 milliliters, you're going to put it back in that 1,000 milliliter container. We're gonna take another subsample and we're gonna do it again. Make sure you're putting the water back, otherwise the math gets a little more complicated and we don't need that right now. So in this example, we got 96 eggs total. So I counted three times 15 milliliters, 96 eggs. The formula is total number of eggs counted divided by the total amount of water and volume counted times the total volume in the beaker. So that looks like 96 eggs divided by 45 milliliters that we counted, equal 2.13 eggs per milliliter. We times that by 1,000, which is how many milliliters we have. We have a total of 2,130 eggs. That should be an extremely good guesstimate of what you have. Now, if I was being a really good scientist, I would take my subsamples, I'd get that number, and now I'd go back through and count every single egg and see how close I am. Right? And we're gonna do that every Saturday until we get really good, right? Yes. Okay, so we know how many eggs we started with. How many of those are actually viable? 
Total number of eggs don't matter if we don't have any fertilized. This is really important because we want to be looking at the eggs and see the quality of the eggs, the health of the eggs, and how many of them have a chance of survival. Because before we get to the larval run, we might have a nutritional issue. Maybe we need to change the diet of the female or the male. Maybe the, the male isn't fertilizing the eggs correctly. Okay, so we can solve these problems before we've wasted our time doing a larval trial. Maybe if you're in a mixed reef tank, there's a fish getting in the middle of a spawn and messing it up. You can find that out if there's a viability issue and then start watching your tank and saying, okay, what's actually happening during the spawning? Do we have some sort of issue? It's really important to know if you have your quality eggs. So if you have oblong eggs, not good. If they're kind of cloudy, not good. We need to go back to square one before we jump into our larval stage, okay? Chart the information so you know when your fertility is the highest. Especially when you're a home breeder, you don't want to just start with a day where maybe you only have 500 eggs, and if you wait two days, you should have 5,000 eggs. If you chart that, you should be able to know when you're gonna have your most amount of eggs. There is typically, not all species, but typically there's gonna be some sort of lunar calendar, whether it's real or artificial. So it might be your LED lights are giving some sort of lunar calendar, it could be the actual pull of the moon, but chart and find out when your eggs are the most viable. This is what we're looking for. We want to look and see a tremendous amount of viable eggs. If you don't know what a viable egg looks like, that's it. That's a happy picture. So this is an actual chart of a flame angel production from January 2018. And if we look at, let's say, what number is that? Number five. Number five, on the fifth, I'm looking going, okay, I have about 5,500 eggs. That's a really good day to start. Only like half of those are viable. So maybe I don't want to start on that day. Maybe I want to start on a day that has a higher viability. Maybe we want to start on, what, day 19. 19 has almost 5,000 eggs, and what is that, 70% viable? That's going to be a much better day to start a trial on. But you don't know that if you haven't been charting the eggs. And you can see there's a little bit of a wave there, so you can kind of figure out when you should be getting more eggs, okay? And you'll know if your eggs get really good or if they start plummeting, maybe there's an issue that we need to work out. Okay, so we know how many eggs we started with. We know how many viable eggs we started with. Let's talk about how many are actually gonna hatch out. So, this is really, really easy. You're gonna take between 50 and 100 viable eggs you divide them up in the well plate and put five or 10 in each little circle, that's it. Or in a beaker, sometimes they do better in a beaker. Do not aerate them, just keep them in the little well plate or the beaker. Make sure the water is maintained at the same water temperature. So if your house is really cold and you set them on your counter, it's probably gonna arrest development. It's gonna get a little too cold, a little too fast. Use a water bath if necessary. After they hatch, so put them in the well plate, go off to work, come home and see how many actually hatched. That's it, that's all you're gonna do. What percentage of them are actually hatching? Do we have an issue here that we can solve before we start our larval trial? Okay, this is a picture again of the well plate and this is a picture of a water bath. So this is something really easy. They take the top of a styrofoam cooler or a little styrofoam piece or whatever you can do cut little holes in it, have it float in your reef tank, have it float in your larval tank. Whatever water temperature is gonna keep it the same, just kinda of have it float around. That's all you have to do, super simple.
So, a couple tips and tricks. After counting your eggs, make sure you remove the unviable ones. So we have on the beaker, they've been aerating, you pull off the air, typically good eggs rise, bad eggs sink. We only want the good eggs, easy way to separate. Disinfect your eggs if necessary. Okay, so we know we have a good number of eggs we've started with, a good viability we've started with, a high amount of them are gonna hatch. Let's talk about water quality. The biggest thing that I can impress upon you today is to take notes. This is the one thing nobody does. They don't take notes of what they actually do. This is extremely important, and my best example is when I first started, I used to breed erectus seahorses. Very good survival, we're gonna make up a number. 90% survival, okay? Really good, beginner's luck, amazing, and I wrote down all of my notes in a journal. And I'll be honest with you, most of my journal is, oh my God, they're so cute. Look, they're eating, I mean, ridiculous notes. However, some of the notes were really important. They were water quality. It was what I was adding to the tank, when I was feeding, how much I was feeding, I was adding all these little notes. After a couple of months of breeding, my numbers went really far south. I was at like 20% survival. And I would have swore I was doing the exact same thing. Absolutely, I'm, doing the, I'm so frustrated, I'm yelling at people. It is just not working, I've been doing the same thing the whole time and now my numbers are down. I look at my journal, not doing the same thing. Over time, I'd slowly changed my routine and it was so slow I hadn't noticed it. But I was able to go back to my journals, read it, go back to what I was doing that was working, 90% survival. Make sure you're taking your notes. And again, when we're talking about everything, it's what did you do here in order to change it here? If I don't know what my parameters were here, I don't know what to change. So make sure you're taking really good notes. Make sure you're, of course, matching your parent tank water, salinity, temp, pH, that's obvious. Make sure you're testing it. Don't be like, oh, I've been in the hobby for so long, I can just look at the salinity. No, actually test it. Uh, make sure you're checking your ammonia. If you are putting 1,000 eggs into your tank, this is from the Fraggle Rock fish, half of those are viable and half of those hatch. Out of my 1,000 eggs, 750 of them are dead and fouling in the water. You're gonna have really big ammonia spikes. So make sure we're separating out our eggs and we're checking our ammonia. As the larvae die, which unfortunately some are going to, you can have big ammonia spikes. Make sure we're paying attention. Make sure you're checking your pH. We're not swinging our pH. That'll kill larvae very quickly. And again, unless you know what the pH was and you're checking it when everything's crashing, that doesn't help us. If we don't know where we were, we don't know where we are, okay? We have to know, oh, pH is plummeting, or has it been there? You don't know if you're not testing your water and writing it down. Keep track of everything. Salinity and, of course, temperature fluctuations, especially when you're in really small containers. If you're doing a few gallon containers, your temperature can fluctuate very, very quickly, okay? Monitor your air and water flow. Of course, you're gonna be changing that over time. You're gonna be increasing it as your larvae grow. So just make sure you're monitoring that and keep note of that. When did you increase air? You know, pay attention to that. Okay, so we've got them to day three-ish, right? When are they actually ready to eat? Typically, pelagic spawners are gonna be two to three days post-hatch. 
We know this um, by looking at the microscope. We're going to be looking at the larvae and finding out when are they actually ready to eat. We're not just going to randomly throw food in there. We know very clearly from research that a larvae will go after the largest particle, whether or not it can eat it. It will absolutely chase down a copepod it cannot eat and run out of energy and die. So we have to make sure we're not adding our copepods too early and they're aging out of the system. We have to make sure we're feeding them when they're ready to feed. So sample a few under the microscope, actually look at their development. The notes here are a really big uh, indicator again because water, is going, water temperature is going to affect their development. So if they develop on day three at 78, maybe they don't develop that quickly at 76. Or maybe this batch is at 80, we really need to pay attention because they're going to develop faster. So you need to know how quickly they're developing and what temperatures they're developing to actually track the species to know when to feed. Make sure you're taking pictures. We've never seen the Fraggle Rock fish larvae before, so this is cutting edge. Make sure you're researching it, taking lots of pictures. We really want to monitor the eye, the, the mouth, and the gut formation. Okay? Obviously, they're not born with that. They're going to be developing it. Feed just before you determine that they're ready. Because they're going to start hunting. They need to get the practice, start looking at some prey just before they're ready. And of course, green water technique typically works really well. And you can use any species, whether it's iso or ted or rhodomonas or whatever species that you have. A lot of larvae will start eating the phytoplankton before they start eating the copepods. So that's a good thing to add to your water. So here's some pictures. So of course, on the end, that's a really big oil globule. Fantastic. The next one, it has eyes. It has a mouth. But you can look, it has a little tiny pinch in its digestive system. It's not quite ready to eat. But we want to feed very, very soon. And on this last one, you can see its mouth is good. Its entire digestive system is good. We are ready to feed this fish. OK, here's some more pictures. And this is actually one of my favorite photos. And this is something you should be paying attention to when you're feeding larvae. If you look. All of these little red spots in here, those are all the little eye spots on, on copepods. So we can sit there and count. There's probably 12 to 15 copepods inside the gut of this fish. And the reason that is so exciting is because not only have I proven they can catch that copepod, they can eat that copepod. That's pretty exciting, especially with this brand new fish, the Fraggle Rock fish. We don't know exactly what it eats. So that's pretty awesome. So what do you feed this Fraggle Rock fish? So normally you would look at mouth gape. And sometimes it's hard to measure mouth gape, uh, especially as a home hobbyist. You don't have all the fancy equipment. So my cheat is, <clears throat> excuse me, I like to put the larvae under the microscope with the food item under the microscope and go, okay, that looks like it could fit, right? That's a good trick. Looks like it could fit. Watch the strike pattern in the tank of your larvae. Okay, this is gonna be really important because you wanna see, can it catch the food? Does it want to catch the food? All food prey items move in a different pattern. So is this pattern what's gonna excite the larvae to get it to eat? Is it this pattern of a rotifer? What pattern is this fish going to want to eat? What strike pattern is it going after? This is really good information. Just watch what the larvae do. 
Can they catch the prey? Even if it will fit in the mouth, doesn't mean it can actually catch it. So you want to make sure, A, it can fit, and B, it can catch it. Nutrition is a whole other realm of, of whether or not it's nutritionally good for the fish, whether it can actually digest the fish. We're just talking basics here. Can it eat the, the, the prey? Trial and error, keep trying. Especially when you're working with the species that have never been done before, maybe it's not the right copepod. Maybe we need to start looking at something else. Take pictures often. Again, that picture with the copepods in its digestive tract, that's really exciting because it's showing it can catch the prey, it can eat the prey. Exciting. So, on to live feeds. So we know when to feed it. Now let's talk about exactly what to feed. Live feeds are the absolute most important part. I am biased. I'm a live feeds person. I'll give you that. However, if you don't have food, you don't have larvae. It's as simple as that. Okay, let's talk about bacterial levels. When we talk about larval systems, bacteria should always be in the back of your mind. Very low flow systems are gonna have very high bacteria, especially if we have decomposing larvae in the system, if we have any of those eggs remaining in the system, any of the live feed that you put in that is dead or dying, especially if you're not using high quality algae, is becoming a problem. All of that is gonna grow bacteria. I think a significant amount of the larvae that are actually dying, that are eating, is gonna be a bacterial issue. So we really wanna make sure we're keeping it as clean as possible. Make sure you're rinsing all of your live feeds really well before we put it into our systems. Reduce or eliminate all film from the surface of the water. So if you're feeding like really waxy, um, any sort of enrichments like a Selco or anything like that, you can get a really gross film on the top. Larvae will get trapped in that and die. So make sure we're clearing all of that off the water surface. Of course, not all bacteria is bad. We're talking about bad bac bacteria here. We're talking about Vibrio and things like that that are actually gonna kill your larvae. But you might wanna make sure you're not cycling your tank with your larval fish in there. That makes sense, right? But if you go, oh my God, I have eggs, and you just set up a tank really quick, you very well might be cycling that tank and you're gonna have ammonia spikes. Make sure you're walking up the food chain. If you touch algae in the morning, and then you touch rotifers, you don't get to go back down the food chain. You can't touch rotifers and then touch your copepods and then touch your algae. We're not gonna have a good live feed system. Make sure you're always walking up your food chain. Algae is the very first thing you do in the morning and you don't go back. And then copepods and you don't go back. And then rotifers and then you take a shower and then you do artemia. You just gotta walk all the way up that food chain. Food chain, excuse me. So, how many of you count your algae? We've got a lot of work to do. Okay, I'm just kidding. Um, as far as counters, if you don't have any counters, they're really, really awesome. The, those ones there are $11 on Amazon, really cheap. Um, this is a blood cell counter. You can get it on Amazon at $44. They're usually $179 or more. These are really nice to count algae. You can do live dead, live dead, live dead. Uh, algae, I do clicker in each hand. Copepods, you can do all the different stages across it. So you can do your nauplii all the way to your females with eggs. You can count them really quickly. This is how you actually count your algae. This is a hemocytometer. 
So if you really want to count your algae, which I highly recommend, um, you would look at this grid system and you would count the individual squares and it's gonna tell you your actual algae counts. I really like to look at this, even if I'm not gonna count the algae that day, maybe I'm running really behind, I wanna look and see its motility. How much of that algae is actually modal? Because if it doesn't have good motility, we're not gonna have good nutrition, it's gonna start breaking down very quickly. We need high motility. Good story. So this actually happened a couple weeks ago. I had a gorgeous culture of tetraselmus, and I mean gorgeous. I'm literally walking around peacocking like, oh man. It's like the most beautiful algae you've ever seen in your life. I'm hoping people walk by my room just to see my beautiful algae. I look it under the microscope, it's like 5% modal. The algae's garbage, but I hadn't looked at it before I started peacocking, right? It was just beautiful. But you can't tell the health of the algae by looking at it. I have been doing algae for 18 years. I can look at algae and tell you I'm at about 20 million per cell. I can tell you the density of my isocrisis, my tetracelmus. I can tell you exactly the day it needs to be cut. I'm extremely good at the looking at algae and knowing exactly what it needs. It needs more nutrition, it needs more light, it needs more air. What is it? I can't tell you the motility. If I'm not looking at it, I cannot actually tell you what percentage of them are actually swimming. Look at your algae. Even if you're not gonna count them, look and see the actual quality of your algae. Make sure you're counting your live versus your dead. If your algae is moving too quickly, I like to do two things. The first thing is I like to look at them under the microscope and get a percentage, how much is alive. And then I like to kill them off, and then I count them. Especially if they're really active. Tetracelmus, if it is really healthy, good luck. It's so you can use isopropyl alcohol, it kills it really fast. If you're not going to count, and I understand you're not, this is an algae density stick, okay? You can get this from Florida Aquafarms, probably some other places, I'm not really sure. But you can actually dip this into the algae, and it's going to, you look at the little circle, and by the time you can't see the circle, you look at the stick, it's gonna tell you approximately the density of your algae. If nothing else, write that in your journal, because you'll know approximately how dense it was that you added to your cultures. So if you add one liter of ISO, and you put that in your notes, not helpful. Because your one liter doesn't look like anybody else's one liter in the world. Quantity doesn't matter. You need to know how many cells are per milliliter, okay? Make sure you're keeping your cultures clean. Again, we we're talking about bacteria being an issue, but you actually have to be culturing what you think you're culturing. It was about a mm, year and a half, two years ago, I went to a public aquarium and we were looking at their live feeds and they wanted some advice on how to make their live feeds better. They didn't have any algae. I have no idea what they were growing, but it wasn't algae because they weren't looking under the microscope. I wanted a microscope. I'm like, I would really like to know what this is, but it wasn't algae. It wasn't anything close to algae. So make sure you're really looking at it. Isopropyl um, alcohol, 70% is your friend. Keep it in a spray bottle. Spray yourself down constantly. I cannot tell you how dry my skin is. It's ridiculous. I spray myself down 50 times a day. That's not a joke. Spray yourself, touch an algae, spray yourself, touch a different algae, spray yourself, touch something else. Make sure you're using something to sanitize your, your uh, actual hands. 
Biosecurity is huge. If you spend so much time breeding live feeds and you're not actually breeding what you think you're breeding, that's an issue. Make sure you're looking at under the microscope. Um, bleach is a really good thing to have like just a bleach container. Anytime something's contaminated or touches something, just throw it in the bleach container. Next day, empty the bleach container, throw it back in. So make sure you have some easy way to sanitize things. Uh, you can rinse or dry from uh, bleach. So just take it right out of the bleach bath, let it dry on the countertop, or you can use your sodium thiosulfate. Um, make sure you pull your water through your tubes, your stoppers, your syringes. Don't just float it in there. It's not going to actually pull through your tubes. You need to actually make sure all the water goes through. If you're reusing any airline tubing or rigid tubing or anything like that, make sure we're actually getting all of it clean. Sterilize your water. This is a really big thing that most people don't get the opportunity to do. Sterilize your water. So here's the recipe. We're going to go through it quickly. Just take a picture. Okay, so that's exactly what you're going to use. Use as little thio as you can. Thio is going to grow bacteria like nothing else. It's incredible how much thio will grow bacteria. And I know exactly, I use the pelleted kind. It is two pellets per 11 gallons of water that I've bleached. Like you have it down to a science. After you figure it out, then you're good to go. Are we good? Everybody got their pictures? Um, this is a really good way to make sure that your water is actually dechlorinated after you've thioed it. Get a little sample. This is a pool, like a pool chlorination thing. It'll turn yellow if there's bleach in it. That'll make sure your water is good to go. Okay, so we have clean cultures. We're going to talk about background counts. We need to know how many copepods and rotifers we have in your cultures. How much did you feed? Everything I had. Not helpful, okay? So we want to talk about how much is actually in our live feeds. So we want to make sure our cultures are mixed really well. So if you go ahead and, and harvest your copepods and you have all your nauplii in a bucket, you can use a pitcher, pick up your pitcher, dump it, dump it, mix it well, and then take your sample. Don't just let the air do its thing. Make sure it's mixed really well. Take samples throughout the culture. You don't want to take it from the left or the right. Your aeration might be changing things differently. Make sure you're taking it, taking it throughout your sample. I usually count about 30 milliliters of copepods and about 0.1 milliliters of rotifers. I use the S species, so I run it really, really dense, like 140 per milliliter. I don't want to count a whole bunch. I want to count a few. I mean, I'm sorry, 140 per 0.1, excuse me, per tenth. So I am not going to spend all day counting rotifers, so I want to get a small amount. And copepods, that's a, for me, that's a good number, somewhere around 30 milliliters. And I can strain that down and actually count it. I like to use iodine to strain, I mean, to stain copepods. First of all, A, it kills them. That makes it a lot easier to count. Um, but a lot of the copepod species are basically clear, so they're really hard to count. I like to stain them. It makes a really pretty orange color. Much, much easier. Strain the cultures if your density is low. If you pull 30 milliliters of copepods and you've counted one, you're going to need a much bigger sample size. Okay, so count more and then strain through a, an actual sieve and then get more to count. Make sure you, see, you keep a chart. This is going to be for basic culturing. Make sure you're keeping a chart to see the density of the culture and how it changes based on what you're doing. Every time you do a water change, what does it do to your culture? 
Okay, every time you feed, what is it doing? When you're changing the aeration, what is it doing? What is the temperature doing? How is it affecting your culture? Again, pay attention to your actual cultures and the numbers that you're getting. So here's your live feeds calculation. Again, you can take a picture of this one. It's gonna give you your basic math. So to count your live feeds, we wanna count it per milliliter. I like to take about a five milliliter sample. In this five milliliter sample, I counted 80 knobs. So your formula, is total number counted divided by your total volume of water counted in milliliters equal the amount per milliliter. So in this example, 80 knops divided by five milliliters is gonna give me 16 per milliliter. That gives me my food density within my culture. That helps me because I need to know how much to feed to my larval system. Everybody got their pictures? All right. First feed calculation. On day three, when I've decided, ooh, my fish are ready to eat, let's figure out how much to feed them. And again, this is something you're gonna play with. We're gonna start with three per milliliter, but maybe that's not right for the Fraggle Rock fish. Maybe they need two per milliliter. Maybe they need two and a half. Maybe they need six, who knows? We're gonna start with a number. Three per milliliter is a really good number to start with. We're gonna do the total volume of water in our larval system. We're gonna start with a really nice small system of 10 liters, because it makes it easy math. 10 liters equals 10,000 milliliters. I like to do everything down in milliliters, so I'm not doing conversions. 10,000 milliliters. We're gonna count our live feeds, which we just did. That's our formula there. 80 knops formula, 80 divided by five equals 16 per milliliter. Now, if I want three per milliliter, I need 30,000 copepods, right? 30,000 divided by 16 per milliliter, which is my density, I need one, well, yeah, 1,875 milliliters, so about 1.8 liters of copepods. So from my culture, I need 1.8 liters, right? That figures exactly how much food I need. We're gonna strain that and clean it a lot and then feed it to our tank. How much are we gonna feed? Not everything we have, okay? We wanna save some food and we don't wanna overfeed. Again, a copepod is, is the perfect size at like an N1 stage. If you feed too much and it goes through your system, all of a sudden it is aging out to N2, N3, N4, it's too big for the fish to eat. The fish is still gonna go after it. It just can't eat it. So you do not want to overfeed. You don't want to feed everything you have. You need to feed how much it needs. So let's figure out how much it needs. That's your first feed calculation, the very first time you feed your tank. Now I'm going to feed my tank twice a day. So the second time I need to figure out how much to feed. If I want three per milliliter, I don't want to add three per milliliter. I don't know how much they've eaten right? So if I add another three per milliliter, I might have too much. So we're going to get our sample from the larval tank. We are going to figure out, we're going to count the sample and figure out how many per milliliter. Here's your formula. If I take out 50 milliliters in your larval system, I count 65 of the little knobs. Formula, 65 what I counted divided by how much I counted equals 1.3 per milliliter. So if I want three per milliliter and I have 1.3, obviously I need 1.7. Okay, so if I need 
I should have done the math earlier. And I had 10,000 milliliters. I need 17,000 copepods. I need to add 17,000 based on my math of 16 per milliliter. That's 1,062.5 milliliters for my culture. So I need about a liter of copepods to add to my tank. Otherwise, I would have had 1.3 plus 3, that's going to give me 4.3 per milliliter. Not only is that bad science, because I'm not keeping with my 3 per milliliter, I've probably added too much to my tank, and I'm running through my live feeds. We don't want to add everything we have unless we need to. So this is a really good system. It's a, a long pipette. You can use this to take a core sample or something like this from your tank. A lot of live feeds are going to go towards the surface, right? They're going to come up towards the light. Maybe you have a type of copepod that doesn't like the light. Maybe it's going away. We want to take a core sample to make sure we're getting all the way from the top into a decent way into the, into the actual culture. Okay? We don't want to just pull from the top. That's not going to give us an accurate number. So we know exactly how much to feed. We know when to feed it. We know how to feed it. Let's make sure we're being really kind to our copepods and our rotifers. If you just dump your copepods onto a screen, you're going to kill a lot of them. And the ones that aren't killed, a lot of them are going to be maimed. So we talked about the actual swimming structure, right? When we talked about how quickly they move, if they're missing some limbs, they're not swimming in that pattern, OK? We need to make sure we're not damaging what we spent so much time growing. So this is what we do. This is just a little four, four liter container. You can use any container you want. Put your little sieve, snap to the side. You fill that whole thing up with regular salt water, whatever is from your system. Now you're going to pour your rotifers, your copepods in that, and they're already in water. They're not going to slam onto that screen. It's a very gentle way to pull them out of your culture without damaging them. So make sure we're being very, very kind. This is a good thing to do for Artemia, rotifers, copepods, anything like that, okay? The last thing I want to talk to you about is enrichment. There's a lot of different types of enrichment. So when we're enriching our um, artemia, when we're enriching our rotifers, make sure we're looking at different types of enrichment. Yes, live algae is going to be best for most species, but they don't all need it. And sometimes live algae isn't available, and sometimes it's just very expensive to grow. A lot of these different products, such as Rodigrow Plus or Enrich, they're just less expensive. So make sure that you're looking at different types, different qualities, especially when we're doing with brand new species. We don't know what's going to work best for that species, so you can try different things. Uh, copepods, live algae is be uh, best for most species, but there are some that do well on paste, such as the Apocyclops panamensis. That one does very well on paste. Okay, so another thing is if you're really bad at growing algae, this is a copepod that might be really good for you. So you can still try copepods, you can still work with them if you don't have the ability, whether that's time or resources or just skill, to do algae. So that's another good option. Rotifers are, of course, only as nutritious as their latest meal. So again, that's one you need to enrich and then feed and you don't want to overfeed because you want them all to disappear. And then you want to enrich and then feed again. So they're constantly getting nutritious rotifers. So you don't have rotifer that's been in there for three days and isn't nutritionally sound anymore. 
Artemia, over 24 hours, of course, you do want to enrich those. You want to do at least six hours of enrichment. That is temperature dependent. So some are going to need a little bit more, some are going to need a little bit less. You can play with that, but six hours is a good spot. And try to get on a prepared diet as soon as possible. This is going to be a lot easier for you if you can get them on a prepared diet, and it's a lot less expensive as soon as you can get them on a prepared diet. Okay? Well, thank you so much for coming. That is my talk. I want to say a huge thank you to my friends in the back, to my family in the front, and all of my colleagues. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs>